Good morning, church. My name is Benjamin Joseph. I'm part of the youth here at Central, and I'm honored to deliver today's message. Um, over the last six weeks, we've been going through this deep dive um, into the book of James, and this week lands us in chapter four. Um, and as we've seen in previous weeks, James is not afraid to call out the church um, in the areas that they struggle with, as well as implore them to take some action. This week features more of the same, and I'd even argue that James ramps it up a bit. Um, in terms of the fiery passion um, in which he writes with. So buckle up, strap in, hold on, and do whatever you got to do as we prepare to go into God's Word today. I do want to preface all of this by saying I'm only 18 years old. You know, I'm not up here to tell you that in 18 years I've mastered everything that we're about to talk about today. But rather, like all of you, um, I'm hungry to learn and to apply James chapter 4 to my life. Um, That being said, I do believe that God has graciously revealed to me certain insights that may help us better interpret what he has to say to us today. So we're looking at James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. It says this, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble, Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against the brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now before we dissect this text, let's come to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, what an honor it is to come into your presence and open your word. We know that regardless of what I say, regardless of what we read, regardless of what we do, it's all for nothing if your spirit doesn't move in us. Humble our hearts so that we may allow your work of your hand to move in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So the passage is kind of set up in an interesting way, almost like a sandwich. We can call this the Chick-fil-A sandwich structure. Simple yet effective. James opens up in verses 1 through 5 by highlighting a problem that the church struggles with. However, in verse 6 through 10, he provides a possible answer, a possible solution to dealing with this problem that he mentioned in 1 through 5. In verses 11 and 12, however, he poses another problem that can be dealt with in the same way as priorly mentioned in verses 6 through 10. So problem, way to deal with that problem, and another problem that can be dealt with in the same way, just like a nice sandwich. So let's start from the beginning here. James starts by rhetorically asking, what is the source of conflicts? What's, what's causing these problems within this church? And he answers this question in verses 2 through 4 by listing envy, lust, and selfish motives as the causes of conflicts. 
Now notice here, these are all inward realities. Envy, lust, evil motives, they all come from the heart, and more specifically, the desires of the heart. Though the results of these may come out through fighting and quarreling, as James mentions here, sin originates in the heart. And that's the first area of struggle that James highlights here, and that's impure hearts. Christ calls us to take up our cross and die to ourselves um, in order to follow him. And this includes laying down our fleshly desires. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.5 when he says, the goal of our instruction is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience. And I want to look at this phrase here, a pure heart. Pastor Tim hit on this uh, last week. I want to look at it a little more here. Um, Psalm 86.11 kind of gives us insight on what it means to live with a pure heart. It says this, Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness and give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. The key word here, if you see, is undivided. A pure heart is an undivided heart. One of my favorite Bible teachers that I listen to, Zach Poonin, defines a pure heart as one that desires nothing else but Christ. Now notice he doesn't say nothing more, but rather nothing else. The beauty of living life desiring Christ only is that the rest of our life we begin to see through a Christ-like lens. Yet this can be so difficult. I mean, the forces of this world, be it power, fame, or wealth, captivate our desires. And one of these desires that we often overlook is the desire to be justified before men. Now, don't get me wrong. Human approval blesses the soul, but only godly affirmation satisfies it. Paul warns about the dangers of this in Galatians 1.10. He writes, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God, or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. You know, having done a lot of things in front of other people, um, I personally struggled with this one. Um, whether it was playing sports, performing music on stage, or giving a presentation, um, I envied affirmation from others. Now, I quickly noticed that when the affirmation did end up coming, I still felt in, inwardly empty. Affirmation from others, though very much appreciated, did not fill that hole in my heart. Although I was getting what my heart wanted, I still lacked what my soul desired. This impure desire of mine stemmed from envy, and I struggled with it, just like the church that James writes to did as well. And as we've read, James highlights the dangers of envy earlier in this chapter, but he actually provides a plausible solution to envy a few chapters before. In chapter 1, verse 17, he writes, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. The antidote to envy is the goodness of God. And I realized that by dwelling on God's goodness, I was better able and better equipped to die to myself when it came to these envious desires. I was also reminded of the things God had blessed me with as well as the things that I should desire, those being rooted in seeking to please him only. Philippians 3.8 sums up the result of dying to our fleshly desires. It says this, I count all things to be lost in view of surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them mere rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Paul reminds us that true satisfaction 
comes only through Christ, and that all other desires we should consider mere rubbish, because he knows, Paul knew, the value, the rewards of knowing Christ, and that those rewards transcend any possible thing that our hearts could envy. That's living with a pure heart. Back in James chapter four, we're gonna jump ahead to verse 11 here where James highlights the second area of struggle among believers and that's spiritual pride. Verses 11 and 12 say, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There's only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Look, we're all at different points of spiritual maturity. We're all at different stages on this uphill climb towards sanctification. However, regardless of what stage we're in, regardless of individually what point each of us are at, we are not and will not ever be in a position to play God in the life of another believer. This includes judging another, another believer's faith, um, having a condescending attitude towards those less spiritually mature than ourselves, or disregarding the opinion of an early believer. There's only one lawgiver and judge, that's what James writes, and it's not us, it's God. And although this may come out in the form of words and deeds, spiritual pride is a manifestation of a fleshly mindset and way of thinking. Romans 12 elaborates on this nicely. Uh, Paul says in verse three, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. And he goes on to talk about how each believer is an essential part of the church. Each of us have a unique, distinctive, and crucial role as part of the bride of Christ. And if divisions are caused um, because of spiritual pride among us, we all lose out. We just read verse three, but verses one and two help us avoid this trap of spiritual pride. They say this, therefore I urge you brethren by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Couple of phrases I wanna focus on. Firstly, do not conform. Now, I know we've all had our various phases of uh, quarantine in terms of picking up new skills. Mine was baking. Yep, that's right, I had a baking phase, that happened. Um, I must say though, I make a pretty mean orange cake. I mean, I'm just saying that thing hits the spot. But staying on the, staying on the analogy of baking here, when I made the orange cake, it, it came out the same shape every time. It looked the same. Why was that? It was because of the container I put it in. Think about a cupcake platter. Every cupcake comes out looking the same. It has the same shape. Why? Because the batter molds or conforms to the shape of the platter. In the same way, when it comes to the way we think, the world has a mold that we are consistently tempted to adhere to. And now unfortunately, this mold is rooted in selfishness and has so badly corrupted what is good and acceptable and perfect, which are the words used to describe God's will here in Romans 12. I mean, consider the idea of beauty. If you take the worldly standard of beauty and compare it to the biblical standard of beauty, there is a stark contrast. The same goes for the ideas of submission and servanthood. Paul implores us, do not conform 
Do not think the way the world does. Do not see what is good, acceptable, and perfect through the eyes of the world. Like we, like we are to do with our desires, we're called to die to ourselves when it comes to our thought lives. Now, this is quite a daunting task, but scripture makes it clear that it's possible. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 say, The thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now, we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. He concludes the point in verse 16 saying, We have the mind of Christ. Isn't that a ridiculous thought? I mean, wow. We have the mind of God. We can reach a point to even a certain extent where we can think like God. How about that? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul writes in the context of spiritual warfare, and he says in verse 5, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And I love the phrasing here, taking captive every thought. We have the power to do this, but how do we get the reality of these verses to become a reality in our lives? That brings me to the second phrase of focus, renew your mind. We don't want to think like the world. We want to think like God so we can avoid the trap of spiritual pride. Where has God revealed how he thinks? Well, a good place to start is scripture. I mean, I know it sounds cliche, but if we want to die to fleshly thoughts and think the way Christ does, we have to dedicate intentional time in the word. I'd encourage all of us to take a moment and reflect on how much time we spend um, in God's word compared to the other things we do in life. In the midst of our busyness, how much are we in scripture learning how God thinks? The word says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. Scripture is meant to sustain us and strengthen us just as food does. Just as we eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner to make sure our physical bodies are performing at their peak capacity, we must also prioritize God's word to strengthen our spiritual bodies for the same reason. However, time in scripture is not, alone is not enough. We must also meditate on it even after our time of reading is through. Psalm 1 verses 2 and 3 say, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He'll be a tree firmly planted by streams of waters, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Having the word of God on our lips from morning to night shapes us and equips us to face our battles when it comes to our thought lives. In terms of a practical application, I'm a strong believer in memorizing scripture. Um, if we think back to Jesus in the desert, every temptation that the devil laid before him, Jesus refuted with the word of God. That was how Jesus fought that battle, with the word of God as his weapon. We've been using uh, the YouVersion Bible app um, for our church Bible readings. And the nice thing about that app is every day it has a new verse of the day. I made it a priority to memorize one verse a week um, using that. Um, nothing too strenuous, nothing too intense, but still making sure that the word of God is on my lips. And I'd encourage you all to do the same and find ways to let the word of God renew your mind as we seek to die to our fleshly thoughts, specifically those regarding spiritual pride. Lastly here, we're gonna jump back to James and uh, hit this last section, that middle section that we talked about earlier. Um, sandwich between the issues James highlights a response um, in light of the church, uh, the church's shortcoming. 
Verse 7 says, submit therefore to God. What's the famous line? If we see the word therefore, we got to go back and see what it's there for. That's what we're, that's what we're going to do here. We do that by looking at verse 6, which says, he, but he gives a greater grace. So we put the, if we put the, the two together here, why should we submit to God? Because of his grace. Titus chapter 2 gives us a, a good picture of what living under grace should look like. Verses 11 through 14 For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good." The first key here is actually the last part of the verse, that Christ gave himself us for us, for our redemption. We were bought at a price, and there is no way we can conceptually even grasp the magnitude of the price that we were bought at. And the more we realize this, the more our love for God grows and our love for the world decreases. Under a true understanding of grace, sin should break our hearts. And this is what James gets at um, in verse 9 of chapter 4 when he says, Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Now he's not asking us to live lives of discouragement. That's That's not what's happening here, but rather he's calling for genuine repentance. Verse 10, in verse 10, he calls the people to humble themselves in the presence of the Lord. Under grace, conviction of sin should bring about genuine repentance and humility because of the knowledge of what Christ did for us. To close here, James kind of drops a bomb on us in uh, verse 7. It reads, resist the devil and he will flee from you. End of verse. And again, I don't speak uh, from authority here because I'm, I'm not an expert in resisting the devil, but if you're like me and have gone through temptation, the battle feels so much harder than just resist the devil. You know what I'm saying? However, as we see here, it is a command in scripture. So therefore it must be possible. And thankfully, James doesn't leave us completely out to dry um, because in verse eight, he gives us a good first step on how we can resist the devil. Verse eight says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Jesus further clarifies this in John 15, 5, when he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whomever abides in me and I in him, he it is that produces fruit. For you can do nothing without me. When we abide with Christ, when the elements of our day-to-day lives are the things that draw us near to Jesus, when we die to our own wills and live completely reliant on the Spirit, that's when we're made competent. That's when we're made capable. And get this, we even have authority over the devil. Like it's not, it's not just resist the devil, it's resist the devil and he will flee from you. What a thought. How about that? Not by our own power though. That's what John 15, 5 says. We can do nothing without him, but rather when we are humbled and empty, just as Jesus was. And when we live in, through the power of the spirit, that's when we can die to our earthly desires. That's when we can die to our prideful thoughts and live as Christ did. Let's be people who have enough faith to allow God to empty us, for we know the priceless rewards of life in the Spirit. 
I'm going to dish it off now to Grace uh, for the last piece of the puzzle today, applying what we learned beyond the scope of ourselves and into our communities. Hello, Central family. My name is Grace. I'm a senior in high school, and I also have a privilege of being the student leader here at Central for our middle and high schoolers. So now we know how God wants us to devote our lives to him and to submit to him. But what's that next step? How do we take that and apply it to our lives? Well, answer is missions. So when I say, let's go on a missions trip, what do you think of? Do you think of packing up a bag, traveling halfway across the world to Mexico or Africa, and building a house, caring for orphans? Well, yes, those are forms of missions. When we say missions, we tend to lose this, what missions truly are. And that's what I'm about to get into right here. Well, how does the Bible define missions? Well, in the book of Matthew, chapter 28, the Bible reads, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So we are commanded to go out and make disciples of all nations. But what does that look like? Now, if you're me, going up to a random stranger and just asking them, hey, how are you with your faith? That's a pretty daunting task. Even with my closest friends, I wouldn't feel comfortable doing that. But don't worry. <laughs> you don't have to go up to someone and just start talking about your faith to do missions work. There are plenty of other ways to do missions. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, actions speak louder than words. And in this case, that's the truth. So missions is not so much about preaching your faith. It's acting in a Christ-like manner. Now, if you're like me, you tend to come up with a lot of excuses. Or we think, why am I the one? I shouldn't be the one to go build this kingdom. I have no authority. Like, I'll let my pastor do it or someone higher in the church. And in the book of Jeremiah, for example, chapter one, the Lord says to me, do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Now, even though I'm a high school student, I still feel like I can't be the one to go and build this kingdom. I'm too young, I'm only 18. And for those even younger than I am, I feel like that is even more on their hearts. But everyone is capable of missions. Or you might think, I've only just started my walk with Christ. I don't have the authority to teach others about God. But the truth is, no matter how far you are in your faith, or your age, or your walk of life, everyone has a purpose in missions. There is a form of missions for everyone. Maybe you're not the best public speaker, or you prefer volunteer work. Well, the thing is, those are all forms of missions. While the physical outcome of missions work is important, like that house you built, or a well, that's not truly what the essence of missions is. And I know for me, that took a little bit to understand, or even just going on a missions trip to understand. 
So when I was a freshman, I had the privilege of going on a missions trip to Northern Ireland. Now, my initial thought was, why Northern Ireland? What are we going to do there? There are no houses to build, no orphans to take care of. But it turns out, as I learned very quickly, there's actually a huge divide in Christians over there, those of Catholic faith and those of Protestant faith. It's so deep-rooted that there has been many years of violence and division between them, so much so that there are separate schools, even separate neighborhoods for those of each faith. So this missions trip wasn't exactly what you would call a conventional missions trip. We didn't go to, like I said, build houses or take care of orphans. We went for one reason, and that was just simply to hang out with the youth of Northern Ireland. There was this house there called the Riot House, which was where we stayed, and it was essentially just a youth hangout spot. Every weekday after school, the youth would come, and we would just do fun activities with them, like play pool, table tennis, even got to play a little bit of rugby, which I wasn't very good at because I'd never even held a rugby ball in my life before then. But it was through these activities, just having fun with them, that they then became more open to talking to us about their faith. And the Spirit moved so many ways on that trip. For example, there was a woman there who volunteered at the house very regularly, and she was of Catholic faith. And on one of our last days there, we were doing a group prayer and she started praying. And after we finished, she told us that was the first time I've ever prayed out loud to God. And it was, it was an incredible moment for all of us just to see that we didn't have to go out and do some huge service project to see God move in so many ways. So back on the emphasis that missions is not based solely on the physical change that is brought to an environment, those, that is a form of missions, and those are important. But the most important thing is showing the, Christ, the love of Christ to others, and that is what truly missions is. Now, you might be thinking, I can't go to this country across the world to do missions. Well, you don't have to, because missions can be done anywhere. Like, they can be done at school, or in your office, or even at that coffee shop down the street. Missions is able to be done anywhere, and with anyone. Now, I want to leave with this. Missions is a lifestyle. It extends beyond that week-long trip you took to Ireland, or that two-hour volunteer period last weekend. So missions has this ripple effect. Think about when you drop a stone into a still pond. What happens? There are ripples. And missions is like that. If I were to show the love of Christ to one person, and then they were to show it to another person, the ripple effect would continue on. Here at Central, we have this phrase, our one friend focus, that we focus a lot on. And Missions really embodies that statement. Like, 
one person could talk to another person and that effect could just spread. So this week, I want to challenge you to do some sort of missions work. Pay for that person's coffee. Text that friend you haven't talked to in a while and just check up on them. Go out and show someone the love of Christ this week.